intertwined together. And so the Reformation, um, God basically worked in it to, to preserve for himself the purity of church. What I wanted to think about this morning are two of the uh, people who were, were, were large parts of the uh, Reformation. First one is John Calvin. Of course, as a Presbyterian, we think about John Calvin. Um, he wrote the uh, Institutes, great theological works. He was a superb thinker. Um, but what we have to look at with the Reformation and with our, our names from the Reformation is these are people. And these are people that had clay feet. These are people that uh, God used that had their flaws, that had uh, things about them that we should not and would not appreciate. Um, Calvin himself. Uh, there was a man named Michael Servetus. Uh, Michael Servetus was a Spanish theologian, philosopher, and scientist. And basically what happened with Servetus is that he came up with a heretical view of the Trinity. And so between the two powers that be, between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants, Michael Servetus was not liked by either one. And so basically he had a death sentence on him, on his head, if, you, if he were to go to the Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic places, uh, he could die there. Or if he went to the Protestant places, he could die there. And Calvin actually said he would not, meaning Michael Servetus, would not leave Geneva alive if he came here. And so as the history unfolds, Servetus did happen to go to Geneva and Calvin didn't have a direct um, participation in Servetus being burned at the stake, but Calvin encouraged it and did not try to stop it. So here's our hero that was okay with someone getting burned at the stake. So here's somebody who's flawed, who's, who's got some things in his life that uh, even though that is true, God used him. God used him mightily. We talk about Martin Luther. Uh, we were just chatting about Luther early this, before church. Uh, I like Luther. He's an earthy guy. But one of the problems that we have with Luther is that he was virulently anti-Semitic. And if you read his writings, he just flames and torches the Jews. And um, so you look at our two heroes and there are more that we could look at as far as the Reformation is concerned. And you wonder, or not necessarily wonder, but you think, okay, how could God use these people? And particularly in the spirit of the age in Western uh, society these days, how could these people be used? And one of the things that, that I want us to think about with the Reformation is perhaps a Reformation in our thinking or in our uh, acting, um, if we look at Luther and we look at Calvin, we put these things out, uh, we have this phenomenon today that we would call canceling. Uh, Luther and Calvin would be canceled because of these things. Even though the great, great works that they did, 
they would be taken out. Now, I know, and with some trepidation, I use the word canceled and canceling because it's fraught with political thought. I am asking you to do the work to not go there. But it is a reality, and truthfully, it is a reality on the left and the right. It just takes different uh, avenues of how it works out. The spirit of the age in the Western world is canceled. No forgiveness. No forgiveness whatsoever. And think about our other Bible heroes. How would this work out? Abraham lied twice about Sarah as my, my sister. And why? He put Sarah into a bad situation because he didn't want Pharaoh to kill him. And so you have Abraham. How should we deal with this? In today's spirit of the age, what do you do with Abraham? You shuffle him off to the side because he did something that was from the Me Too movement, not good. If you take David, that's even worse. We spoke about David last week. Yeah, our David back there. An adulterer and a murderer. What do you do with that? In the spirit of the world today, you would cancel him, shuffle him aside, and he would be irrelevant. So basically, what I want to do um, with the scriptures today is let's see what the Lord has to say about unforgiveness and being canceled. And so if you'll turn to John 21, uh, I'm actually going to read most of the passage because it does set the stage. Now, I want to look at this this passage um, in the broader picture. So John 21, verses 1 and following. If you'll stand, reading God's word. John writes, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon said to them, I, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any faith? And the, uh, Fish, I'm sorry. Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came into the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of God, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God, meaning Peter. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. There's a lot in this story to unpack. And what I want to do is uh, draw you into the story as we look at it, as we see the different uh, things that are working within the story as we see the different uh, avenues and the different little gems that will come out to us, uh, I'd like for us to really put ourselves as much as we can in the situation, kind of seeing this in our mind's eye as Jesus reveals himself again to the disciples and then also uh, talks particularly uh, with Peter. Now, one thing, the reason I read the whole thing is the setting is the Sea of Galilee and the setting is there, Jesus meeting them in the morning and they're going to have breakfast. Now, it's interesting when you think about it, um, there are several things that we see in here. First off, they've fished all night. Now, if any of you are fishermen, you know that that's really not fishing, that's just sitting there getting your nets or your line wet, especially if you don't catch anything and they didn't catch anything. And as they come toward the shore, they see Jesus. And we see this story telling us that the nets, Jesus told them, throw your net out and pull it in. And it was full of fish, even such a minor detail as 153 fish. So what does that tend to make us think. If you read the story carefully, Jesus is revealing himself. And what would the mind of these disciples perhaps go to when they see Jesus tell them, haul in the net, there's going to be a lot of fish. You see how Jesus is kind of revealing himself here? What do we think back to? In Luke Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, same thing. Throw your net out, pull in the fish. And there were so many fish that the net itself was breaking and the ship was beginning to sink. And I don't think that was lost on the disciples 
as Jesus shows them one more miracle that coincides with the miracle that he showed them previously. So he's setting the stage here. He's, he's setting the table, so to speak. I mean, if you can imagine that, um, hopefully these guys, they saw this, they understood it, they kind of had an inkling. But then as they come to the shore, what do they see? They see Jesus with a fire, with fish and bread, and he invites them to eat. Where do you think they might have seen that before? Perhaps not the fire by the seashore, but it sure does look an awful lot like feeding 5,000 people. In John chapter 6, verse 11, feeding 5,000 people with fish and with bread. You see how Jesus has drawn these guys in. He's pulling them in. He's showing who he is. Because at first we know they didn't recognize him. But then John's eyes open. It's the Lord. And Peter responds. And and fantastically, I think, Peter responds. Um, He wasn't naked in the boat, most likely. He was stripped down to his um, underclothes. But he puts on his tunic, jumps in the water, and goes to Jesus. That, to me, is is somewhat, um, in in a way, awe-inspiring. Because as it unfolds, we'll see what happens here. They all come to shore, and then Jesus starts with this, after breakfast. Think about it. They're all sitting around the fire. They're eating fish for breakfast, which is not real appealing to me. And they have bread. Now, what's going on in the disciples' minds? We can't really know this. This is just kind of uh, holy speculation, so to speak. But can you think that perhaps there was an elephant sitting on the shoreline with them? Think about it. Peter. It was only days before that he had denied Christ. And here they're eating breakfast. And all y'all know in some family settings, there are times when there's something that needs to be spoken, but it's really not spoken. And everybody knows it needs to be spoken, but you don't talk about it. And everybody knows eventually you might talk about it. And there could really be a huge explosion if you talk about it. And so you kind of don't want to talk about it. And you kind of, you know, I don't know if there was nervousness or whatever, but they are eating breakfast. Here's this thing that's in there because these disciples had seen Peter and his actions. And I can tell you, I've had meetings with people that I just didn't want to go to because I didn't want to have to confront or be exposed. So Peter's sitting here thinking, I think, Something big's going on. So we come to the story of Jesus and Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Uh uh-oh, the attention comes and the spotlight shines directly on Simon Peter. And I can tell you, and we all know that Christ, our Lord, is gentle and kind, and merciful, but he's also very straightforward. 
And so here he turns his eye and his gaze to Peter and he asks a beautiful and wonderful question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, why might that be such a hard question? Some commentators is asking, do you love me more than you love these people? Do you love me more than you love these things, the fish, the nets, and the boat? But I think it points to, Simon, do you love me more than these people love me? And I think we can say that that's a good inference because what did Simon say in Mark 14, 29? I won't fall away even though they do. Oh, and then he follows it up in verse 31. If I must die with you, I will not deny you with the implication of They might. So Jesus, in his good and straightforward way, basically exposes Peter. He just pulls the veil back. Because Peter and Jesus, can you imagine these other disciples sitting around the fire? They're there. They haven't cleared out. This is not a private moment. This is a moment where all of these folks are there together. And Jesus asks the question, and he just really rips Peter's guard completely open. Do you love me more than these people do? Man, they knew what Peter did. Peter knew what Peter did when he denied the Lord three times. That would be, at best, embarrassing and probably pretty devastating to have Jesus just expose you or expose him in the midst of all this. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, there are a couple things. Some of you may know this, some of you might not. Two things that I want you to to know as we move forward. First, there are three and perhaps four words in the original languages that speak of the word love. You have the word agape, you have the word phileo, and you have the word eros. Now, keep in mind, we're going to use two today, agape and phileo. The other thing I want you to keep in mind is a um, literary device that John uses called the historic present um, tense. And what the historic present tense does is it draws us in as a story is being told. It's not just seen as a story in the past, but it's seen as a story right now, that we are actually in the presence of it and we are looking at it. And this is what it would sound like. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, our friends up north in New York, hey, he says this and it, you know, that's the historic present. Jesus says, John is trying to draw us in and he's trying to make this so alive to us that it's not just history, but it is a present thing that we can, we can be involved with. And Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
And Jesus uses the word agape, which is a love of sacrifice. Do you love me more than these? And Peter, see, as we read in the English, it gets a little confusing because when I uh, was, didn't know or didn't, had not studied the languages, to me it was just repetitive and actually really, frankly, obnoxious and annoying. Why would you do this? But there's more to the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Jesus says, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me more than these? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Wow. Peter can't bring himself to the point of saying, I love you with an agape love. That's kind of condemning. I mean, it's kind of like your wife asking, do you love me? And you're saying, yeah, you know, I love hot dogs too. What kind of love are we talking about? So Jesus continues on and he continues to unfold. He tells Peter, even after Peter cannot ascend to the love that Christ is asking of him, feed my lambs. He says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he says to him, tend my sheep. So one more time, he asks this question. Then a third time, He says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? And Peter says to him, Peter was grieved because he says to him the third time, do you love me? And he says to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus, and he used the phileo word, and Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Yeah. I said earlier, just a few sentences ago, that when I began to read this as a very young Christian, it was kind of annoying. I didn't understand. Now, looking at it, one of the things that you see in here is that Jesus, in his grace and mercy, moved to Peter's ability. He didn't require of him something that he couldn't do. And... Uh, of all things, I think Peter needs to be commended here in all of his flaws and all of his faults and all of his denials and all of his uh, bragging and whatnot. I think Peter needs to be commended here because he recognizes that he cannot stand up to the love that, or step up to the love that Jesus asked of him. He recognizes. And thankfully, he doesn't kind of try to make himself something. Of course, Lord, I agape you. No, I I can't do that. So I think we need to commend Peter. The other thing about this is that we see that um, Jesus gives Peter uh, some tasks. But before we go there, the other thing I want you to think about too, three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. Why do you think it was three times? He denied him three times. 
So you see what Jesus is doing? He's putting the knife in and he's poking it, but then he withdraws it and gives Peter forgiveness. He's exposing Peter. He's, he's letting Peter know that his betrayal did not go unnoticed. I mean, Peter is just flayed wide open with this. You know, Peter, do you love me more than these people do? Well, you know, they're all going to think, well, look at what, you know, remember what he said? Mm-hmm, me. And then Peter three times. I know what you did. Now, it's interesting that after that, he says, uh, he, he moves out of the historic present in verse 17, and he says, it's a little dark here, um, feed my sheep, he said, he said to him. So John moves out of that and then expands the story. Now, why, why deal with this when we're at Reformation Sunday? Why think about what Jesus has asked of Peter? First thing he asked is feed my lambs. And the original, the Greek is basically take my lambs to pasture. The second time is uh, shepherd my sheep. Peter, shepherd my sheep. And lambs and sheep, he's referring to the the, uh, church, the flock of God. So we see Jesus's forgiveness as he moves through Peter's denial and he restores him. He gives him a task of taking care of the church of God. Now, earlier on in Romans 12, 1 and 2, verse 2 in particular, we read that Paul is saying, be transformed by the renewing of your minds because that, that causes us to grow. We need, if we are caught in the unforgiveness trap, of Christians, our brothers and sisters, or if we are caught in the canceling trap of our brothers and sisters or any others, we need to transform our minds with the concept of forgiveness and the concept of restoration. Each and every one of us here has a past. Each and every one of us here has a present where in the past we have failed God. And it could be very spectacularly, or it could just be something, but even so, every sin is important to us. It's important because it, it breaks fellowship with the Lord. Every one of us may have something in the present that we are wrestling with, grappling with, And if we were to really expose it, perhaps think that maybe the Lord just wouldn't give me grace and mercy. If there was anybody in the history of the Christian church that should have been canceled or not forgiven, who was it? Peter. Three times being uh, denying Christ, but restored to the situation of feeding his church, caring for his church. What is God's view of unforgiveness and of canceling? I don't think he has one from the standpoint 
It's not something we need to worry about. It's not something that we need to uh, concern ourselves with as we walk with the Lord. In John 10, 28 and 29, let me get there real quick. Uh, speaking to, um, speaking, Christ says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Who is he talking about here? Not rhetorical. Who's he talking about here? Christians. His followers. And so we have a a word from Christ himself of security. We have a word that we're not going to be canceled. That's not something we need to worry about. We have a word given that we are forgiven. That we have a security. That we have a position that will not be lost And even if we are like David or Abraham or Calvin or Luther, as we as we confess, as we open it to the Lord, as he calls us to be his own, as he gives forgiveness and grace and mercy to us, we are secure. We are in a situation where we don't have to perform. One of the major things that came out of the Reformation is you do not have to do penance. You don't have to earn your forgiveness. You have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a security and a position. There is no sense in God's mind of canceling us. There is no sense in God's mind of not forgiving us. Then we go to Romans chapter 1. I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. Paul is writing to believers and we have to understand that he is writing specifically to believers. And he says, there is therefore now no cancellation. There is therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we're going to sin. We're going to blow it in many, many different ways. We're going to not perform to our standards. And we are certainly going to miss the mark as it comes to our Christian lives. Should we be canceled? Will we be canceled? Will we not be forgiven? Will God withhold his grace to us? Will he withhold his mercy and just go, you know, you've gotten on my last nerve and that's it. I'm done with you. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of you. I'm tired of you messing up. I'm tired of you coming with the same old thing, asking the same old thing, confessing the same old thing. I am fed up. That may be us. 
But that's not God. We see that with the one who betrayed him most and hardest. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then I want to look briefly at one that uh, some verses who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay? Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the man that wrote in chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't, I do. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. We need to have a radical thinking in terms of forgiveness. Some of us get beat to death by the accuser and by the accusations of our failings. And we need to see that we need to transform our minds. We cannot go by our emotions and by our influences. I mean, if you're hypoglycemic, you can get to the point of thinking everybody in the world hates you, God doesn't love you, simply because your sugar's off. Our bodies influence the way we think. Our minds influence the way we think. Our circumstances influence the way we think. And we need to go to the scriptures which God brought to the Reformation. And the scriptures and Luther and those looking into the scriptures saw the truth and stood up against the religious power of the time and said, no more. We need to do the same thing. We need to renew our minds by understanding and knowing the scriptures. And I want to encourage you, we need to read the scripture. And if you don't enjoy reading, you have a lot of options. There's stuff on the internet that you can go to and it will read to you. You can go old school and buy a CD. For some of you, you may not know what a CD player is. But you can listen to it that way. You can listen to the word of God. There is no excuse for any of us in this room today or any Christian who calls themselves a, a child of God to not have the scriptures available, except those that, and, and you know, I'm talking about people who have the scriptures, not those who have not had it translated into their language. And we should be convicted of our need to ground our lives, not in our emotions, not in our circumstances. 
We need a new reformation in our own thinking sometimes that, my goodness, God has given us the word. We need to stand on it and not let anything else accuse us, not let anyone else accuse us, not let the enemy accuse us, but see that through the stories of Abraham, of David, of Gideon, of all of these, and of Peter, of all people, not being canceled and not being condemned, but given a glorious task. I don't think I would choose Peter as the guy to say, feed my sheep. He had such feet of clay. But the interesting thing is the Lord knew that and knows that. And for each and every one of us, we probably won't do great things like Peter or Paul. But we can be faithful. And we can do the ministry that God has called us to, whether it be art, whether it be preaching, whether it be teaching, whether it be being a mom, being a dad, being a good worker, whatever it is, that, whatever ministry God calls us to, we can do it with a good heart and with joy so that we please the Lord and we show him that we love him. And that's what Peter's response was. I love you. I'm, I'm forgiven. And just one more thought. Think about this with Peter. He who has forgiven much loves much. Now let's not compare ourselves to Peter because even though our sins might not be as big as denying Jesus three times and then hearing the rooster crow, any of our sins breaks fellowship with the Lord. And any love and any forgiveness is great and wonderful and vast and deep. So brothers and sisters, I'm sorry I didn't do a historical discourse on the Reformation, but we need to reform our thinking. And we need to reform it with our relationships with others to not be unforgiving or canceling. And we need to reform it in our own minds that we are forgiven, loved more than we could ever possibly imagine. And that we need to reform our minds in our commitment to the word. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you this morning. You've given us, uh, you've given us such a flawed man in Peter. And yet we see your great love for him. And even though you exposed him, you, you, you forgave him, you were merciful to him. You put him back. You took him back. Father, for each and every one of us this morning, as we look to the examples in scripture, as we look to scripture, as we look to your word, help us to see ourselves with forgiveness and mercy. Help us to hear those words that I will never leave you or forsake you, that I go to build a mansion for you. And if I go, I will come back for you, that your sheep hear your voice. Lord, there's so much that gives us security, so much that nails down our position and your love for us. Help us, Lord, help us to remember that, especially those of us who frequently accuse our own selves and listen to other words of accusation and failure. Lord, help us to know that there is no condemnation for those, those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And we make our prayer this morning in his name. Amen.
I want to forego the reading of the uh, catechism and just go directly to the table while it's fresh. We have here before us that visible sign that the Lord has given us, tangible, um, touchable, tasteable, seeable, smellable. I know those aren't words, but they're words I made up. If any of you this morning are dealing with a sense of insecurity, or if you're dealing with a sense that perhaps you're not quite as worthy as you should be because of the sin and difficulty in your life, this table tells us different. This table tells us, uh, in a way, Peter or Jesus saying to each and every one of us, you know, do you love me? You know, knowing that we have sin in our lives. We confess it. We have mercy. We have grace. Um, this table reminds us that we are to not willingly sin because in the book of Corinthians, uh, there were those who were sinning by misusing this table and Paul told them that they were in danger of dying because of it. But as we come this morning, we see the body of Christ. We see his blood. We see mercy. Justice has been poured out on Christ. We see mercy. I want you to see mercy. I want you to come in joy because you have been restored. And if you're floundering, there is restoration. If you are having difficulty, there is power in the Holy Spirit, but there is mercy even in that. So I'm going to pray briefly before we come to the table. I'm going to encourage you to say your own prayer. If there's really something outstanding, take a moment and confess it. If there's something you're grappling with, take a moment and confess it. And know that this table shows us that the blood of Christ covers our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So let's pray together. In the quiet of your mind and your heart, bring that sin before him, bring that insecurity, bring that doubt, bring that thing that is holding you back, bring that thing that Satan is just whacking you with all the time to accuse you and to discourage you. Bring that. Expose it before the Lord before we come to the table. Father, we speak of it so often as we do communion each week. For me, the danger is that it becomes just a religious habit and not an encounter. Lord, as we come to this table, remind us that we don't come flippantly and we kind of don't come easily, but we come confidently knowing that you have forgiven us. Lord, as we bring these elements before you, 
we ask that you would use the bread and use the wine to speak to us, to open our eyes of mercy, to see your mercy, to see your grace. Lord, that we could come in thanksgiving, in doxology, in Eucharista, in joy. You have forgiven us. It was a great cost, but you have forgiven us. And so as we see these things, as we approach you, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage our hearts, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. Brothers and sisters, we're going to come to the table, and those of you who know Christ as your Savior and trust in him alone for your salvation, I want to invite you. Uh, We have wine and we have juice. The wine is in the stemware. Uh, The juice is in the shot glasses, the the shorter uh, things. Come and rejoice in your forgiveness. Come and rejoice in the love of Christ. Come and rejoice that he gave himself for us, not to condemn us, but to be merciful to us. Come to the table. Thank mm-hmm. you.